Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Hello, kitties. This is Alice Cooper. Hi, I'm Jeff Barnaby. Hey, this is Amethyst Kia. Hey, I'm Jeff Vandermeer. Hey, this is Lucy Dacus, and you're listening to Q. Blackbird is a new TV series that follows the case of a suspected serial killer. And Greg Kinnear plays a detective trying to solve the crimes once and for all. Now, Greg Kinnear is a figure you know mostly for his comedy. But today, he's here to tell you about the weight of telling a true crime story with real-life victims of violence. And he's got stories about working with the late, great Ray Liotta on the series. Plus, Big Sean is one of the biggest rappers in the world. But there was a moment a couple of years ago when he says he was broken inside. Worst of all, he felt like he couldn't talk about it. But today he'll tell you about the moment he realized he had to stop and pay attention to his mental health. That's coming up on Q. This week, there's a new crime thriller TV series coming out. It's called Blackbird. And one of the show's stars is Greg Kinnear. Now, you know Greg Kinnear. He's the kind of guy who always shows up in comedies and he plays out the sort of neurotic, stressed out figure. He does this in Little Miss Sunshine or You've Got Mail or As Good As It Gets. That's You're used to seeing him in that kind of happier stuff. But Blackbird is not like that. There's, there's no other way to describe it other than it's kind of a dark show. It's based on real people and events. It involves a series of violent crimes against women in the American Midwest in the 80s and 90s. And Greg Kinnear's character is the small-town detective who's determined to nail the guy that everyone else in the town says is just a serial confessor. He's just spinning a yarn. He's just telling tales. Greg Kinnear talked to Tom Power about why he was interested in Blackbird, as well as the twists and turns that his own career has taken in show business. How are you? Good. How are you today? Uh, but, you know, I, I could be worse. I'm not too bad. This is, a, this is an interesting show for you because, again, real crimes took place in the 80s and 90s, not too far from where you spent your childhood, right, in Indiana? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm from a small town a couple uh, hours north of uh, Indianapolis, and uh, this uh, Larry Hall, who's ultimately the <clears throat> the monster of our story, uh, is from a small town not too far, uh, about 15 miles down the road of the one I was born in. What was the reaction to the script when you got it? Well, I, you know, I knew Dennis uh, Lehane's work as a writer and an author. You know, I thought the script was uh, was excellent. And and I think we all kind of felt that way. We did a table read during COVID. Uh, so it was very, you know, virtual for everybody. But it was uh, probably one of the best that I had ever experienced uh, for it to, to have that clarity of story for it to read and just kind of pull you in the way that it did. I, I had uh, high hopes for it. 
Well, let me let me just set this up a little bit more. So the show follows several characters, one being a suspected serial killer, as you mentioned, who is often found innocent of crimes he confesses to committing. Your character is the detective trying to prove his guilt in several murders. I guess the reason I asked about what you thought was the script is that the show has a great intensity to it. It's a, it has a I mean it's a powerful show, but it's a very it's a, it can be a very heavy show. Was was this something you would normally watch if you weren't in it? Is it, what, talk to me a little bit about, about taking this on in that way. Well, I found the story amazing. Um, I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, you know, I left Indiana when I was about nine years old, so I, I don't have a huge, you know, uh, legacy back there. But I certainly know the kind of scope of the of the people and and, and the culture. And I've always had an interest in true li- uh, true crime stories. I, I wouldn't say I uh, it's it's on my TV dial every night, but you know, an interest in it. And I just. Listen, a great story is a great story. A a great script is a different animal altogether. And I just felt that Dennis did such an incredibly uh, strong job of weaving together a number of different narratives in this. And, And it's not a simple story and making it palatable for an audience and also landing the gravity of what a tragedy this was and and that there are there is real consequence and real death in this which i think in these true crime things can sometimes feel a little like entertainment chowder on the side i felt like i i cared about uh jessica roach and the the, the girls that whose whose lives were taken I mean, it's an interesting point right and it's a common critique of true crime that i think i would share in is that you know sometimes the 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 crimes can be um hyped up to a level to which they don't feel real anymore and you can lose empathy or you can lose sympathy for the people it actually happened to. I will say in this show, it doesn't feel like that. You know, the fact that you, you are constantly reminded and you're constantly reminding yourself that the people who were killed and the people who were affected by this are real people. And this actually did happen to, to people. So that's, that's in like how I would see it. As an actor, does that feel any different? As an actor, does it feel any different when you're participating in this that's based on real crimes and real stories? Well, I mean, I guess, truth be told, I haven't done a lot of things in this space. So this was a bit of a learning experience for me. Uh, I, I, you know, I can only speak honestly about my own experience, which was maybe partially because I'm from this part of the world, you know, where, where this was taking, where it took place um, or, or because the story is as strong as it is, but I, I connected with it, um, you know, in, in a pretty deep way. I play the character I'm playing is a, is a real life detective is, is that name's Larry Miller, but we didn't want to confuse the audience. So in the story, I'm Brian Miller because Larry Hall is our serial killer. And Larry Miller was a comedian, right? In the eighties. Uh, good point. Yeah. I yeah. Right. That one may be another good reason. To <laughs> yeah, not do yeah. Right. 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 Uh, might've changed the tone. A little bit. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we, uh, we went with uh, Brian. He was a real detective and somebody who was deeply suspicious of Larry. And yes, the local detectives were like, Hey, Larry's a serial confessor. Don't get, he's not our guy. And Brian was, uh, you know, he he wasn't uh, easily motivated off of his conviction that this was um, the guilty party. And he was interested in ultimately, you know, bringing this guy to justice. Larry, these two girls in my town. No, I was just goofing around with them. If they said that there was more to it, then they just didn't get the joke. I'm sorry. I, I would never dream of hurting two girls. Well, you might dream of it. 
What are, what are you guys talking about? Larry has vivid dreams. Tell Brian here about your dreams, Larry. They're just dreams. Just tell me about them. I didn't meet the guy that I play, but I had a good sense of of who he was, a former Vietnam vet who actually, you know, was a bomb detonator. So he was somebody very technical, very specific, and was just the wrong guy that you, if you were a criminal, this was not the guy you wanted on your tail. Here's what I'm curious about. When, like, as an, I don't, I don't act, I've never acted before, but like when you, like, I know you've played, I think you played JFK and Joe Biden. Um, when you play a real person, is it, does it feel different as an actor than when you're playing a fictional person? I I think it depends on who the, you know, who the person is. I mean, uh, you know, certainly, uh, the people you just mentioned there kind of have a pretty high profile. So I think you feel a little bit more of, uh, you know, people are watching. I haven't seen Elvis that just came out this week. I'm interested to check that out, but I mean, you know, credit to Austin. I think that's like a, that's a pretty big fish to fry. You know, people are going to be like, is that my Elvis? And, and so there is the more, the more identifiable the character is, I think the greater the obligation, but you know, I played, I've played other people who, you know, who are real life people, but I, I don't think anybody knows who Dick Vermeil is that well. He's a former coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know if people are watch me and go, hey, he's not like the Dick Vermeil I know, <laughs> unless you're a diehard Philadelphia fan. I don't know and if you read the some. YouTube comments, but they're they're there. Are you- uh, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, did yeah. my best. As, as speaking of, I mean, speaking of icons, it's hard not to watch the show. And I know you guys were never on screen at the same time, but it was hard to watch the show and not notice Ray Liotta in it. And you know the, we we just lost him recently. Did, was there any off scene, off off screen meeting between you two? Yes, I made sure to stick around my trailer one day when I knew he was showing up, to, and just kind of lollygagged so that I could accidentally run into him uh, and fanboy uh, with him a little bit, which I did. I I met him briefly uh, in passing um, one day because we don't work together, but uh, terrific guy um, and obviously an incredible actor. I was this close to actually doing something with Jonathan Demi, who I went out and met in his house in upstate New York. I kind of, at least I thought it was that close. It was probably 50 miles, but, um, but I, I mean, something wild, uh, Ray's performance in that was, uh, you know, one of the things that really, I think stirred me up about acting as a, as a young guy and thought, my God, you can go that upside down with a character um and obviously you know everything else that followed his his daughter carson is cast in in this show um oh she she worked a, a day she was fantastic um really really fantastic and funny enough I was getting ready to do a play in New York and didn't know where to stay. So she said, well, let's call my dad. He knows where to stay. So we got him on the speakerphone one day and had a little conversation with Ray. But listen, I don't know what else to say other than, you know, if you like, if you love movies, you're a fan of Ray Liotta one way or the other. And uh, what a tragic loss. I'm glad you brought up the play in New York because I wanted to ask about it. I mean, you just you just opened um, your major Broadway debut in To Kill a Mockingbird as, as Atticus right. Finch, which I mean, it's funny when I talk to you about the weight of playing real life characters. It's almost like the weight of playing a fictional character like Atticus Finch just because of his presence in our in our time is yeah. is um, is so heavy. 
t- talk to me about, I guess, the first time you walked out on stage in that role. How did that well, feel? You know, Aaron Sorkin had crafted just such a beautiful uh, play. I mean, I don't know, 190 pages or something, but I just felt like they were, it could have been nine pages. You, I, Whatever he wrote, I wanted more. I thought it was so beautifully uh, written. I thought the show, which I saw with Jeff Daniels, I was, you know, inheriting the show from Jeff in the middle of COVID. By the way, I only did a handful of shows and then COVID blew us up. I truly uh the, we had a wonderful crew and a wonderful cast yeah i don't know there's a little bit of a getting shot out of a cannon experience your first time on broadway uh, i'm sure that's said by everybody i some, at some point though uh they're like it's you have to hit your cue and it's time to go on and then you have to go on so i guess that just at the end of the day reality takes over and you um you have to trust in the language, which in that case made my foray into it a lot easier. Walking out onto a live audience like that, like that must, I mean, I can't, I can imagine that you are, are present in your character because you're professional and you have to be present in your character, but I have to imagine there's, there's still a bit of Greg in there going like, holy shit. Like there's a little holy shit going on. That's right. Yeah. That's, my, that's, that's right. That's my favorite Smith's <laughs> album, by the way. That is, that is uh, completely, everything you're saying is correct. <laughs> uh, there's nothing I'm challenging in that. And, uh, and you're, uh, you know, hanging on for, for dear life. But then, uh, as I say, you know, at some point, a friend of mine is a uh, TV broadcaster for uh, football. And I've kind of sat there with him a few times. That's a live show, obviously. You know, he's always like, well, the first couple of minutes are a little nerve wracking, but then it's just you're into the show. And it, it, I think it's true of theater as well. I mean, that could have been your life. I mean, you did talk soup for a long time. And then and then is, isn't the story that you when Letterman retired, you turned down the Conan gig. Is that right? No, I didn't ever. I was never offered uh, uh, that job. They were kind of talking to me about uh i i had taken bob costas's spot so i was on after conan at yeah. like uh you know three o'clock in the morning or something and uh um but no i felt like you know there was a, some press that wrote and kind of made it competitive like between us i was never gunning for that job the truth is you know um we ended up losing we started with an audience for uh, my show. And then we eventually got rid of it. You know, talk soup was just me and it was like this, this is what doing talk soup was. So, you know, I, I hadn't come from a, you know, stand up background and it was, uh, I, I don't, it was just a, an animal that, uh, that I don't think I ever was prepared for. Congratulations. You are about to watch the award-winning talk soup hosted by a man named Kinnear. Greg Cunningham. Oh, yeah. It's the white water of talk shows, folks. Coming up, a skinny dipper is dragged into the police station with absolutely nothing on. I did like doing the show. I did it for probably at NBC for a year and a half, but... uh... But I, I wasn't taking over uh, twelve thirty. Uh, but and, and I know this is, and I, 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 I want to come back to the show. But I've always been curious about this too. When you go from a role that is more, say, critiquing and commenting on pop culture and on like creative endeavors, to then embodying a creative endeavor, like becoming an actor, going from someone, uh, someone like a talk show host, to being a, an actor. Is, what, what, what is that like? What is that change like for you just as a person? 
Well, I, I'm sure it's different for different people. I mean, I, I always, uh, you know, kind of the stuff that I did in that space always felt a little character for me. I, I, I didn't ever, uh, um, you know, it wasn't like I was doing the Charlie Rose show. Uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, I, I think now the idea of sitting down, I, I guess everybody in the country has a podcast now, so <laughs> that would be the next logical spot, but, um, you know, talking to somebody be wonderful. I'm curious. I, I would enjoy that aspect of, of any job, but with the kind of, this is in the eighties, early nineties, you know, there was kind of a, you know, it was the height of Letterman Leno and all of that. I think there was a real, emphasis put on the comedy and the bits and the shtick and maybe even still is to some degree but i i feel like that to me is where it it becomes harder and, and you do have to form some sort of uh persona you know there is some persona behind that job and becoming an actor i feel like the leap isn't as crazy as as maybe it sounds Certainly at that time, you know, the idea of doing a talk show and being an actor was like just completely unheard of. Now, I feel like, you know, you can sell, do Stucky's commercials and go make a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis in the same week. It's crazy. Like, I don't feel like the boundaries are anywhere what they used to be from what I remember, even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. I mean, but I mean, and, and not just to have like this, not just to have success in acting, but to have success in acting in such a real way, like the little Miss Sunshine role. I mean, I just talked about that on, on the, on the way in. I mean, I'm sure people still talk to you about that role. I mean, that was such a powerful film. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. A uh, lovely little film, uh, you know, a script that, uh, you know, everybody, we all felt like was great, but it wasn't kind of getting made. There was like a year where that movie wasn't getting made. And, you know, Abigail, uh, who plays Olive, was aging out of the role. <laughs> so so everybody was terrified. And, uh, and you know, credit uh, one of our producers who just said, hey, I'll write a check uh, for the ridiculously low amount of, I think, six or seven million dollars, uh, which got the movie made. And I think he made a little bit of cash out of that. If there's one thing my father would have wanted, it's to see Olive perform in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Now, I believe we'd be doing a grave disservice to his memory if we were to just give up now. All right? There's two kinds of people in this world. There's winners and there's losers. Okay? And you know what the difference is? Winners don't give up. So what are we here? Are we winners or are we losers? Huh? I think when you look at your your career, it's so interesting, right? Because you, you you start out hosting late night TV, or you're doing talk soup, and then, yep. as I mentioned, as good as it gets, and then you know, and then there's a lot of comedy. There's there's, there's Friends, there's there's Modern Family, but then in this show, you really do see this depth of sort of dramatic acting and this tension and this sort of beautiful weight. Was the range in your acting career a, a conscious choice? Like, is is a role like this a conscious choice like that? I liked how grounded this man was, and I, I liked how um, I liked the dramatic stakes of this show. I'm grateful to Dennis for putting me in it. I mean, I uh, I don't know. I, I didn't I wasn't conscious in the sense that I was looking for something like this. But, you know, you read it. It's fantastic. And then uh, it's just do you want to do it? You say yes. You find out later whether or not that was a bad idea or a bad choice, <laughs> uh, but I certainly felt like it. It seemed to make sense, and I'm, you know, obviously really pleased that I did it. 
Well, it's, it's been great to talk to you. We, we got a lot in 20 minutes. Thanks a lot for your time, Greg. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Greg Kinnear talking to Tom Power about the show Blackbird. It comes out on Apple TV Plus this Friday, July 8th. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud sitting in for Tom Power. Take a listen to this. I was raised by the wolves. I was raised by the wolves. I was raised by the wolves. Eight said they fool. Run through the night, playing with your life. Going against the pack, that's risk in your life. Better play it right, yeah, you better play it right. I got loyalty. That was Wolves off Big Sean's fifth studio album, Detroit 2. That album debuted at number one on the Billboard charts back in 2020, and it was Big Sean's third number one album in a row. So it's safe to say he's one of rap's biggest superstars. Now listen, if we had like, I don't know, two hours or so, I'd tell you all about how he was supposed to be Kanye West's protege, how he plucked him out of obscurity himself, handpicked by Kanye West to sort of take on the mantle of, I guess, Kanye Westdom in the future. Uh, and so he's had a pretty incredible career. He's been nominated for lots of Grammys. He's worked with Ariana Grande, Eminem, and Drake. He's known for songs that make you feel good, make you feel like you've got this. Basically, he makes songs that you will want to walk down the ramp to if you're a professional wrestler getting ready for a big match. That's the kind of stuff that uh, has given Big Sean his name. However, even though a few years ago Big Sean was the most successful he'd ever been, he says he was also the most depressed he'd ever been. Right after the album drop, uh, Tom Power had a chance to talk to the Detroit rapper about everything that was going on. So here's Tom's conversation with Big Sean. And just a heads up, in this conversation, they do get into the topic of suicide as a part of it. Hey, Tom. I'm glad to be here, man. Glad to glad glad to be here talking with you. How are you feeling? I'm not too bad. I'm curious because we're so close in Ontario and so close in Canada to Michigan. Like we're just across the border, and yet it's it can feel like a different world to us. So I, I'm I'm interested to talk to you a little bit about this. Like I mean, you, Jay Dilla, Stevie Wonder, uh, Eminem. I mean, the history of Motown. The record's called Detroit Two. Absolutely. You're wearing a Detroit shirt. What's <laughs> what is it about Detroit that has made it such a breeding ground for? artists for great artists man that's a great question it has to be you know it has to be something because when i even think about way back and you know first of all the first paved street in america was made in detroit with the automotive industry the first mall ever built you know and when i think of like motown you know it gave an identity to the black people in music really, you know, and the, the imagination to push through to create something so powerful without having any blueprint or any like way to know how to do it was, it's just really 
incredible, you know, and I've talked to Barry Gordy about it. And he just was like, man, I failed at every single thing in my life. Like, till I was 30 something years old. Like he said, I did like a hundred things, man. And I failed at all of them. And then finally Motown worked. And I don't know, man. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a special place. It's a place that's seen the top and the bottom dramatically. Mm. So I think that has, you know, giving character to the people from Detroit and it's giving them an unbreakable spirit and a resilience and a hunger and a passion that, you know, shows through in, in everything that happens there, you know, including the music and the art. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say a couple of things in there. One is that it has the top and the bottom and it's a city of resilience because I feel like that's what I hear from you on this record. Um, Detroit 2 is obviously the follow-up to your acclaimed mixtape Detroit. Um, mm-hmm. what's the biggest difference in you from then to now? The biggest difference from me in me from then to now has to be, it just has to be the way I, the way I view things, I guess, and how I approach things. You know, I feel like one of the main reasons why I called it this album Detroit too, is because, you know, I was going through such a tough time in my life that, I, you know, had tons of anxiety, tons of depression. I just, I really felt like broken on the inside. Yeah. And I had to take some time for myself for the first time in my life, which I didn't even know how to do. So I had to really figure it out, you know, through therapy, through a lot of meditation and just spiritual guidance through like, um, just rediscovering myself. And when I did, you know, especially doing a lot of that spiritual work, I went back to like, you know, my younger days because I, I had lost that passion that I once had and I wanted to rediscover it. And I, I was thinking like, damn, how did I, how did it, why did I go to the Friday Night Cypher when I was 16 years old and like do that show every week? You <laughs> yeah. know, why, why was I sleeping in the studio? Like, why was I so hungry? And when I really went back to those times, it like relit my passion and relit my flame and hunger. You know, I think that it reminded me of when I was working on the Detroit mixtape. So it was like I brought those essences back, but as a new and improved version of myself. And I think that I'm just a I'm I'm still figuring out it's still a journey. Right. Obviously. But it's just my bandwidth has expanded a lot since since the first Detroit mixtape, you know? Let's listen to a song. Take a listen to this. Damn, I realized all my setbacks were inside of me. In high school, I learned chemistry, biology, but not how to cope with anxiety. Or how I could feel like I'm by myself on an island with depression on all sides of me. With a Glock 17 right on the side of me. Look, I ain't think I had a thought of suicide in me until life showed me all these different sides of me. Too many times I thought the Reaper was outside for me. And how the fuck is people that... That is Deep Reverence by Big Sean. He's my guest, um, featuring the late Nipsey Hussle. That line really stuck with me. I didn't think I had the thought of suicide in me until life showed me all these different sides of me. And Sean, I want to I want to be clear. I'm not here to get you to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. How, however, you see how I managed to take that when you were talking about Detroit. That it's a yeah. it's it's ups and downs and it's resilience. And I think you hear that in that song. Yeah, for sure. I mean. There's been some times, you know, your mind can really, really play a lot of tricks on you, too. And you can really get in your thoughts. And I'm somebody who lives in my head a lot. So, you know, I, I realized that, I, you know, I didn't know how to deal with things properly. And 
I can deal with him way better now. You know, it's I still feel a lot of the same ways. You know, sometimes I feel like we all do, but it's just really about how you deal with them and how you're able to get through them and 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 really bring yourself back to like your core thoughts. You feel me? I do, and I think it's an interesting conversation about when you when you get to the top, when you make a bunch of money, when you get success, when you get things that you've been you've been hopeful for. Mm-hmm. How do I put this? Your problems don't go away. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, th- I think there's an assumption that, and I think I felt this, that if I only get to, uh, if I only sell so many, uh, if I only have this profile, then maybe all the other stuff will go away. It's like, when did you start to realize that that wasn't the case? Man, when I bought the house that Slash used to live in and, you know, all these beautiful things and I was, the, and had probably had the most money I guess I've ever had, but I just was the most depressed that I've ever been in my life and like. You know, had a literally had a when I say I had a Glock 17 in my hand, I really did, you know, and it was just I don't know what I don't know why I was feeling feeling like that, but I just I couldn't stop feeling like it. Like it felt like it just was it was deep, you know, and it taught me that all these conditional things are are just that, you know, you think you want all this like watch or the car and all that right but it's like those things get old so quick that you got to realize that okay what what's why are you really doing it you know and for me it's like i'm doing it because this is my purpose you know like i feel like my purpose is to inspire so if i'm walking in my purpose and realize that and accept that and i hear that in my music it's way more fulfilling than any other thing i could either ever do you know it reminds me of a couple of months ago you tweeted don't don't pretend to be okay if you're not what happens to your music if you're pretending to be okay like i feel like something happens to your music you know yeah hell yeah and anything you do music just any any profession you're in like business if you're a lawyer if you're a doc if you're flipping hamburgers you know what i mean like anything in between it's like you can't pretend to be okay. It's only gonna. It's just a front that's only gonna last for so long. And you know, you gotta prevent yourself from self-destructing. It happens. I think that as fans, we don't take it seriously when it's an artist we love, or especially when it's an artist that has inspired us or an artist that has given us good times. Mm-hmm. I think even in, in the case of Kanye, and I want to point out, I don't. I know Kanye is your friend, and I know he um, discovered you in, in so many ways. I, I, again, I only want you to talk about what you're comfortable talking about there. But when I look at him, when I look at like Kim Kardashian West, his wife who comes out and says like, listen, this guy is, is struggling. Uh, she said, you know, he needs compassion while he's dealing with his bipolar disorder. And there's a lot of manifestations that. of that. Yeah. She, needs, he's, she said he needs compassion. I wonder if we take mental health seriously enough in the artists that we love. You know what I mean? I wonder if we take it serious enough in just the people we love too. Not just the artists, like. You know, I remember when I started going to therapy, my dad started going to therapy, you know, it, it was like he it inspired him to do that. So, you know, I come from a family where it's like my grandma was one of the first female black captains in World War Two. And my granddad was in World War Two as well. And they met back then. So they were amazing people, but they didn't know how to express their emotions, you know, and it trickled down, I feel like, to me. So. You know, I got confused when I got older and had all these emotions just pent up inside of me and had to had to figure had to figure it out, you know? And when you look at your our favorite artists or, you know, people people like Kanye or 
Um, well, I, I feel like there are no people like Kanye. He's very, <laughs> very unique uh, in, in a great way. You know, um, he's always just been like says what's on his heart. And is just like a pure creative and a, a extremely the most talented artist, you know, of uh, of his generation. Yes, it can be a lot to handle when you live in a life that's so high, high, like just, uh, what's the right word? Just, I don't want to say in demand, but just, it's just like high pressure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a a, a lack of humanity that I think when people become celebrities or people on the cover of magazines or they have a trillion followers on, on Instagram, they're no longer humans. You know what I mean? They become stories. They become... Yeah, and people pick you apart, you know, like you're not a human being or, you know, they, they talk about your babies and say, oh, that, that kid looks ugly. Or they say, you know, smash or pass. Or they say, you know, man, he this guy could have done better. Or what happened to him? Or he's canceled or she's canceled. And it's like they hold you to these standards that are not even human, I feel like. I don't even know if they hold themselves to the same standards. And that's that's kind of it's kind of weird because who are we to really judge each other? I mean, I feel like I would grew up going to church and being told that God is the only one that could judge us, you know? So it's just, it's like, it, it gets confusing to me that that's the way of life or how we live. You know, that shit is like up to me a little bit. But I do appreciate social media because of how connected we all are and how on the same platform we all can be on. But it's something about how the people on there are like operating on it is a little low frequency sometimes. Blessings on blessings on blessings. Look at my life, man. That's lessons on lessons on lessons. I treat the beat like it's irreverent. I tell the truth like, Father, forgive me. These are all my confessions. I'm John Power. You're listening to Q. Big Sean is my guest. He is one of the biggest rappers in the world right now. He's collaborated with everyone from Ariana Grande to Drake. We're talking about his album, Detroit 2. I haven't had a good time in a long time. You know, I... You bring a lot of people a lot of joy. Is that part of what brings you joy then? Like, I'm just trying to think about, like, you know, we're talking about this incredible darkness, and and obviously no one comes out of it. Like, no one fully comes out of it. We all live with it with a certain amount of ourselves. But I can tell you've done some growth here. Like, Mm, how how much of, like, inspiring people or making people just dance or, like, feel good while they put their makeup on is part of you bringing yourself joy? That's all that really brings me joy from my from my craft it's not really i mean making the music can be fun and you know and that's joy but it's only like why you make it right but the real joy is the impact of it really the inspiration like you said somebody putting on makeup being in the gym you know the rock the rock hit me up and was like man that song with you and post malone wolves really like he was i had that on repeat like in the gym man that was that one really was pushing me my life depend on this this ain't no simple sucker shit try stealing you get bit that's what you must get i feel safe for taking risks and i can't eat this on my own life put my back against the wall just to see how much i grow dog i was raised by the wolves it's, it's moments like that, you know, from your idols or just from people like family members. My aunt hit me up saying like, oh, you killed this album, nephew. You really did. You know, that made me so happy, you know, because it's like that is my whole purpose is to inspire, you know, uplift, to motivate. It could be inspired to dance, have a good time to, you know, get get in your head and, and create and 
whatever it is, it's just, I feel like that's my real purpose though. I can you relate. I, I can relate to it. The rock hits me up sometimes to ask me about lifting. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, but like, you know, he hits me up sometimes. I just need some help. I'm having a hard time getting past the, you know, the chin up. Right. I've done one chin up in my life, but I did it pretty well. Listen, in, in the topic of, of joy, um, I want to go back to this clip. Take a listen to this. What's my purpose? Why is my purpose? Where is my purpose? I am, I am purpose. When I compare my purpose to someone else's, then it is no longer my purpose. Disconnect to reconnect. Disconnect to reconnect. I mean, that kind of that song leads to where we are, right? In our conversation right now. What's your purpose? My purpose is to inspire. You know, like that's it. You know, and anything that I do, whether it's music, if I choose to write a book, if I choose to, you know, I started a production company with one of my best friends, and like he's like an amazing director and writer. So working on TV shows, I can't let Fifty Cent get all that, all of that, and <laughs> you know. It's just whatever I choose to do, it's like with love and inspiration attached to it, because that's just where I'm at. That's that's my purpose, you know? All right. So I want to end with joy then. And I want to give you an option here. We have about a minute left. I want to end with uh, bringing a bit of joy to the audience right now. And I want to give you an option. Can you either tell me the story, like a story you got from playing the White House, um, a story uh, about... Let me see here. How or the story of you getting discovered by Kanye, or maybe the, the story that Dave Chappelle tells in the record about your dad. Pick pick one of those. I'd love to hear you end with a little bit of joy here today, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, performing at the White House, being the first rapper to perform there, that was crazy, you know. And that was with Ariana back then at the White House, and that was an honor. Do you got a story about it? Do you remember something about it? Well, I remember I met Jim Carrey there, and I rapped about that on One Man Could Change the World. My grandma told me if you write your name in stone, you'll never get the white out. I grinded out that black hole and performed up at the White House, standing next to Jim Carrey. We traded stories, then laughed. I said, You're not the only one I know got rich wearing masks. Where I'm from, I swear. Oh, that was a good day. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of the other things you said. Dave Chappelle. Get, tell the Dave Chappelle story, maybe. Can you tell quickly tell the Dave Chappelle story? Yeah, okay. So I'm hopping off of a plane, and Dave Chappelle's hopping on a plane. This is like at five in the morning. And I'm so like fuzzy, like because it's like five in the morning yeah. and I see Dave Chappelle and I'm like, oh shit, it's Dave Chappelle. So I'm walking up to Dave Chappelle and he's walking up to me and he's like, bro, I love your dad. And I'm like, what? And I remember my dad called me a couple months ago before that and was like, man, I was just with Dave Chappelle. Yo, he loves your music, son. Like he told me he listens to, you know, your albums and. I was backstage and he was, my dad was like saying all this stuff. And I was thinking that my dad was exaggerating the story a little bit, you know, cause he's done that a couple of times. And when Dave Chappelle said that to me, that was the first thing he said when I met him, I was like, Oh shit. I immediately called my dad after and was like, yo, my bad. I didn't realize that you really meant like you had an impact on Dave Chappelle, you know? And then, you know, Dave Chappelle was telling me about it and, I told him that I was working on the album Detroit and he was like, yo, man, not only will I say a story for you, like if you ever have a concert in Detroit, I'll open up or do a set for you, like and, and donate all my proceeds. You know, he's like a, a real stand up, a real goat, um, a real stand up guy. And I just appreciated him for, you know, being involved. But that was, it was the craziest 
thing, though, man, to think about. I mean, think about running into Dave Chappelle the first time you never met him. And it's 5 a.m. <laughs> and then he says, I love, I love you, your dad. <laughs> uh, Sean, I'll tell you this. I think being a, a great, you know, a good, decent person manifests itself in a lot of ways. One is offering to open up your show. One is offering to donate the proceeds. One is offering to help you out. Another is being honest about the stuff that we don't like to talk about that affects us so that we feel like we're not the only ones going through it. And uh, um, I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you. What a great interview. And uh, thank you for... You know, thank you for listening, man. And thank you for being a real voice of somebody who really cares. You know, keep keep up that great work. We'll see you across the border now soon, maybe in like 2024. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, really lovely to meet you. Take care of yourself. You too, man. That was Tom Powers' conversation with Big Sean. Since his album Detroit 2 came out, he has released an EP with producer Hitboy. It's called What You Expect, and it's available right now. Okay, take a listen to this. Of course, this is One Love by Bob Marley and the Wailers, the song that became a symbol of Bob Marley's message to the world. The Jamaican reggae titan only lived to be 36 years old, but since his death in 1981, his legend has grown bigger and bigger. He received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, I believe. It's uh, quite an incredible class that year. Elton John, John Lennon, uh, the band, the Grateful Dead, just along the greatest titans of rock and roll. And Bob Marley was inducted, I believe, by Bono. He's the person who did the induction speech. Uh, Bob Marley's become a symbol of peace for so many people. You can hear his music played at protests as much as celebrations. And part of the reason that he's so ubiquitous today is due to the work of his children. Sadella Marley is Bob's eldest daughter. She was just 13 years old when Bob Marley died. And she spent a lot of energy preserving and protecting her father's legacy. Sadella is also an artist in her own right, with three Grammy Awards and 10 albums with her siblings. She came in to talk about a new immersive exhibit about her dad's life. It's called The Bob Marley One Love Experience, and it's on at the Lighthouse Arts Space in Toronto. Sadella, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. The, the One Love Experience is, is made up of all these uh, themed rooms that you go through. There's a room dedicated to Bob Marley's music, a room about his hobbies, a room about Jamaica, a room dedicated to his family. How does it, uh, how does it make you feel to walk through all of these um, different worlds of his? It's, it's a good feeling, you know. The, the only thing, the only thing that's, that's really missing that I, I even said today on my second walkthrough is I'm missing some aroma. Mm. You know, there's a special aroma that Bob Marley carried with him wherever he went. And although I hear it's legal here, um, <laughs> I, I haven't been able to find a candle with the same essence. Mm. So we have little tweaks to do, and that's probably the only tweak. <laughs> yeah, apart from that, everything everything is a vibe. That's beautiful. I love that. Uh, your father's life and legacy has been thoroughly explored through so many different avenues, whether it's movies, books, you know, different documentaries. Uh, at this point, it might be hard, I think, for people to imagine that there's something new to discover about him. What do you think 
might surprise um, a devout fan who knows so much about Marley already um, in this exhibit? Well, the thing is, like you, like you said, Daddy, Daddy passed when he was 36 years old. Yeah. You know, and we're in 40 years of his passing now. So I think almost everything that is out there of Bob, we have all seen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the thing about this exhibit is that it's how it evokes mm. the emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the pictures are all from our, archi- our archives. Um, so, And they're blown up, you know, really, really big. Yeah. So you, 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 you kind of get to see every little thing. You might even see a blemish or you didn't know he had a beauty spot or whatever it is you might, you might notice. Um, but I think when I go through the rooms, and I've been through the rooms several times, it's, it's always a different emotion, mm. you know, because I kind of pass something and then I go back and I look at it again and I say, wait a minute. Um, I didn't realize that that was where that picture was taken. Say, for instance, if it's taken at 56 Hope Road in Jamaica or if it's taken at the house in London. So you just, you just kind of you experience him on a different level. Mm-hmm. You might be seeing some of the same photographs, but the way it's presented, it evokes a different emotion. I kind of felt that way when I was walking through and I got to the the, the stretch of the exhibit that mm-hmm. is all about his love of football. Mm-hmm. You don't have to call it soccer here. We're among friends. We're, among, yeah, we're among real people. <laughs> uh, and the, there's something about that room that kind of made his love of the game kind of come out. You know what I mean? Yeah, and listen, if if we didn't have to think about insurance – We'll be doing like scrimmage in that room. <laughs> yeah, six aside. I mean, bring it. You know, girls versus boys, whatever. Because um, that's what I really wanted to happen. But, you know, yeah, they said, Sidella, no, we can't really do that. Yeah, but you see, we always see him with a ball and, uh, and chess. He loved to play chess. Really? He loved to play chess. Did he teach you how to play chess? He tried. I was not interested. <laughs> I, I know. I like games where you can be loud. It was, it was too silent. It well, was... You, didn't like it. you mentioned somewhere that he used to call you the infiltrator. Where did that name come from? <laughs> from, from um, so my, my dad sent us to Catholic school. Yeah. And I couldn't understand because I was very happy with my parents being Rastafarian and living off the beaten path and all of this stuff. And so when it was time to go to high school, he said, you're going to go to Catholic school. And I said, why? I don't believe anything in, in, in the Catholics. And he said, because you're going to infiltrate them and you're going to come back and tell me what. <laughs> you know, it was, all, it, was all, it was all a comedy skit, you know. Yeah. But at the time, I felt like I was really like some type of like uber spy, you know, going in and taking the communion and tasting it and then going to go back and tell daddy it's really just a thin piece of bread. You know what I mean? Right. Reporting back. Reporting the, back. Yeah. yeah from yeah. beyond enemy yeah. lines, if you BMI. Will. Of course. That's wonderful. I, I have to imagine that uh, as you walk through all these exhibits and you see something like um, this beautiful uh, moment where you see the handwritten lyrics of Turn Your Lights Down Low. Mm-hmm. Um, in his handwriting, he had much better handwriting than I did. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, wh- what does that conjure for you? The fact that it's in his handwriting right there in that exhibit? I mean, it, it just it just feel good, you know. Um, everybody know he can write. I mean, he writes yeah. like a doctor, but he can write. Um, but it's, it's just a it's just a piece of something that you don't generally see, mm-hmm. and for it to be in there that big, mm-hmm. you know, it, it. I mean, I I can't tell you what to feel when you see something, but I know what I come away with, 
And um, apart from being emotionally, you know, attached to certain things, it, w- it was good to let certain things go mm-hmm. so that we could share that with the rest of the world. Actually, can we talk about the sneakers for a minute? Because there's a pair of his sneakers in yeah. that exhibit that you donated. Yeah. Uh, tell me the story. How did you find those sneakers? Well, my, my, my granduncle, who's actually from Toronto, okay. um, gave it to me about 19 years ago. And, you know, I never even dusted off the dirt off of them because I, I just wanted to touch, feel, smell, you know, stare at. So I did that for about two days and then I put them up in my closet. And then when Jonathan said, Sadell, do you have anything? I said, I have sneakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're there. It's, it just adds such like a personal touch to see them just kind of right there in front yeah. of you. Yeah. Worn. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, The world's largest indoor vinyl record is on display in this exhibit. Um, It's of the album Legend, which includes this performance. That is, of course, Bob Marley singing No Woman, No Cry at the legendary Lyceum Theatre in London in 1975. You can almost hear the crowd just wanting to just, like, get away with the song with him. Yeah. What do you hear when you, what do you hear in that performance? He's on key. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the band have everything right. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when Daddy performed, he performed with purpose. Um and it's so good that when you write your own material, mm-hmm. it's it's hard for you to fake anything, mm-hmm. you know? So I think when you hear him perform that song and every other song, it, it makes you feel a different emotion. Um, that one, yeah, that that's a heavy one. It's a light one, but it's a heavy one. Mm-hmm. Because what year was that? 76? 1975. 75? Yeah, so, you know... 75 to 81 is not a lot of years. So you kind of want to think, what was he going through at that time? You know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Your dad was a a co-writer on that song, No Woman, No Cry, but he wasn't credited when it was first released. Mm -hmm. What's the story there? Oh, he kind of gave it to Tata because he wanted Tata to build um, like a food kitchen in Jamaica. Mm. Yeah, but daddy wrote the song. Oh, wait, but so he, he was giving the credit uh, mm-hmm. to Tata. Who's mm-hmm. Tata? Can you explain? Tata was a friend of his. Yeah. Yeah, from Trenchtown. And his, uh, the, the willingness to give the song credit was that so that the royalties would go towards uh-huh. building a... That's an, that's an incredible gesture. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's who he was, who he is still. Let me reintroduce you. I'm talking with Sadella Marley, the musician and eldest daughter of Bob Marley. She's in Toronto for an immersive exhibit about her father's life called the Bob Marley One Love Experience. I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud sitting in for Tom Power, and you're listening to Q. Sadella, your dad was an icon in Jamaica, but he was really passionate about spreading his music internationally. Can you tell us a little bit about the forces he was up against in terms of you know, trying to make that happen? Well, let me correct you. He was not an icon in Jamaica. Mm. He was an icon to the rest of the world. Uh, Jamaica, I, I, I don't know if up to now they, they realize um, what they have or what they had. Um, Daddy was always, his crowd was like, I want to feel like 98% white audience. Mm-hmm. And 
he always wanted to be, and he sang about it, play I on the R&B. Mm. I want all my people to see. Um, he could understand why black audiences weren't coming to his concerts. And so that's why he went to open for the Commodores, right? Right. Because he's like, they have a black audience. Right. I, I have to, you know, I want, I want to talk to people of my color. Um, and there he goes. And then he got kicked off that tour because after he performed, the crowd was leaving. <laughs> so, so he got to accomplish that one thing that he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he got a black audience and he was very happy, very, very happy that that happened. And um, I was happy too, because of course, years after that, he was not here with us any longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. There's an interesting tension that you bring up about the idea of maybe black audiences at the time weren't looking to listen to someone like Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Like, wh- What are the different ideas of blackness that are kind of clashing or in conversation there, do you think? Well... It's kind of, you know what I feel sometimes? I kind of feel like um, black music. It's almost like, say, if you come from Trinidad, you don't like Jamaicans. Mm. Or if you come from, you know what I mean? So there there seems to be some type of, I don't know, I won't call it foolishness, right? Where sure. if, if you're not us, we're not into your music. And I think back in the 70s, when reggae was trying to come up, you know, black America... No, we into our, you know, our rap, yeah. you know, and whatever else, or R&B at the time. Um, and it makes sense. You know, we, we, we like what we like. Mm-hmm. But he was determined to get to that audience. And so when he even did songs like Could You Be Loved, you know, it is not what, what we would call a hardcore reggae song with the one drop and the bass line. Like he, he's trying to like, let me see how I can cross over a little bit, but I don't want to lose yeah, got my got a bit core. of funk to it. Yeah, yeah. It, got, it got a whole lot of funk to yeah. it. Um, and he did that. And, and it worked. It worked because now, you know, a lot of black stations still play Bob Marley today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they have their preference, of course, the one song with Lauren Hill, but whatever. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, yeah, so I think, I think he accomplished that. So we've now come to this moment where, you know, we hear your dad's music on vacation at people's weddings and these like really big celebratory moments. Um, we see his face um, on a lot of college dorm rooms. Um, there's a room in the exhibit that kind of pays tribute to that. Like, like it doesn't matter what decade that you live in. There's mm-hmm. going to be a Bob Marley poster somewhere in your college dorm room. Mm-hmm. But there's also a different kind of context, which is like – Oftentimes, you'll hear Bob Marley music at protests, you know, at Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. You quite often heard um, his music. What does it mean to you to hear his music across all these different contexts? What do you get from that? Well, I think there, there's a Marley song for every moment. Mm. And that's, that's the genius of Daddy. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't call him that a lot, you know, but when you put things in context, it is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. um, even even in my everyday life, if I if I if I get up and I feel away, you know, 
um, it always comes to my head. If you get up and you quarrel every day, you say in prayers to the devil, I say. Mm. So those, and I remember that because sometimes I wake up really like, I didn't like how yesterday went and I, today I'm ready to fight. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I start to fight in my dream until I wake up. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> well, your father said, don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is, that is the genius of daddy that whether you want to make love or you want to make war, Mm-hmm. There's a Marley song mm-hmm. that's suited for all of that. I think there's a quite often sort of a way that he's received as being someone who's about the one love philosophy, and that's true. But you know, you read all the accounts of like, for example, when he was playing soccer, mm-hmm. um, and everyone says he was the most competitive person mm-hmm. on the field. And I think there's something that is interesting about the sort of juxtaposition between those two ideas. So is there something that you think people get wrong about him often? Um, I don't know. I don't know because anything, anything them gets wrong is probably right. So, mm. so I, I, I don't know. I just, I just know my dad was really an overachiever, mm. you know? Um, he was the first one at rehearsal, the last one to leave. Um, he would rehearse for hours and hours and hours and hours. And as children, he used to tell us, listen, if you're going to do something, you have to make sure you're really good at it. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything halfway. You know, if you're going to do it halfway, don't do it. Go try something else. And I think that's something that he's instilled in us. And up to this day, we still carry those lessons with us. That's a lot of pressure to grow up with, though. Um, it's not a pressure, you know. It's, it's a blessing because if, if not that, then what? Mm-hmm. You know, where would I be sitting? Well, wh- where do you think you would be? Like what, I guess like tell without me. Without those lessons? Yeah, without those lessons. Oh, come on. I, I just probably believe like, oh my gosh, I'm, 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 I'm this and I can just, no, I have to work. Like every day I work. Like I tell my kids at Jamaican, we have to have like 10 jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the, the reason I ask that question is because, you know, there are so many people who um, are related to other famous people, other icons, who do quite a bit to try to, you know, distance themselves from their parents' legacies. Mm-hmm. But you've made it your life's work to mm-hmm. take on the pressure, right? To take on the pressure of maintaining and protecting that legacy. So what, what draws you to that, do you think? Because I can handle it. Mm. Yeah. I mean... I don't want to give you some long, ray, 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 ray. It's just the truth. I can handle it. I think I was born to do it. So I do it. I think there's something about the fact that, uh, you know, you were so young when he passed away. Mm-hmm. That uh, does it feel like you're sort of having conversations with, with your memories of him when you're sort of doing this work? No. I have real conversations with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, we'd like to play one of Bob's songs after this interview. Would you do us the honor of picking a song that maybe doesn't get as much love and attention as it should? Um, Let's do kinky reggae. Beautiful. Kinky reggae. Why kinky reggae? Just because I'm feeling that way. Well, that's Sadella Marty. She helped create the Bob Marley One Love Experience, an immersive experience about the life of her father, Bob Marley, showing in Toronto until August 14th. Thank you, Sadella. Thank you. One love.
That's Kinky Reggae by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Before that song, you heard my conversation with Sidella Marley. She's Bob Marley's daughter, and she helped create an exhibit about his life. It's on at the Lighthouse Art Space in Toronto until August 14th. That's it for Q today. Meet us back here tomorrow. Dolly Parton, the legendary country music star and philanthropist, is now a rock and roll Hall of Famer. Just a couple of years ago, Dolly wrote a book called Dolly Parton, Song Teller, My Life in Lyrics. She collected the stories behind 175 of her favorite songs, including Jolene and I Will Always Love You. You'll hear about some of those stories tomorrow from the great Dolly Parton herself. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'll see you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.